Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Back Half podcast. I'm Tom Gatti, Cultural Editor of the New Statesman. And I am Kate Mossman, the Arts Editor of the same magazine. And we are called the Back Half because Kate and I both work in the back half of the office on the back half of the magazine, which is where you find all the arts, books, film, television, theatre... All the the fun stuff, basically. All, All the fun stuff. All the stuff that doesn't involve you putting your head in your hands and despairing at the uh, state of the world. And we are down here in the podcast bunker on uh, November the 7th, which is the eve of the anniversary of Trump's election. And also the day when, when Christmas comes, according to Pret-a-Manger and Costa Coffee and maybe Starbucks. So this morning, the Christmas sandwich was out and the vegetarian option and a vegan option. And Costa had the t-shirts and the cups. And you were straight out of the starting gate, weren't you? I was at the starting gate. I got the vegetarian one. It declines every year, as does the meat one. There's no cranberry sauce in it anymore. I don't understand. Maybe cranberries do constitute a meat, but it's sort of just a mush of sweet potato and some onions. But I have been studying the decline of the Christmas sandwich over about 25 years now. Really? Mm-hmm. And that will, that the ensuing study will be published? I think probably about 2040. I think as people moved away from bread, um, because they thought it was bad for them, the, the prep felt that they had to kind of reduce what right. was the essence of a sandwich mm. um, and just make it drier and thinner and lighter. So there's nothing to bind it together anymore and there's mm. no fun in it. But mm. I still buy it. Five pence of it goes to a homeless person. <laughs> Five pence. Uh, if if you needed any other argument, I, I don't know. I don't know what it could be. No. Uh, shelving those Christmas sandwiches for a moment. In the rest of this podcast, we will be talking about Oxide Ghosts, which is a new documentary about the making of Chris Morris's Brass Eye. And we'll be looking at whether you might be able to see politics and culture of Donald Trump and his era in the classics of film noir. And we will, as always, have our non-anniversary, a non-significant anniversary of a non-important cultural event. A year ago tomorrow, the New Statesman writer and novelist Douglas Kennedy took to his bed after the election of Donald Trump with a bottle of bourbon. Bourbon? 
Which one is it, Bourbon or Bourbon? Bourbon, I'd go for Bourbon. bourbon. It's Bourbon yeah. Street in New Orleans, isn't it? Bourbon No, creams. it's Bourbon Street. Anyway, what are the biscuits? Bourbons. Custard creams. <laughs> so anyway, he went to bed with some whiskey stuff. And biscuits. And he watched uh, in his depression over the course of probably about a week, lots and lots of film noir. And he started to make connections between the values of these shady films and the new age of dirty deals that Trump had ushered in, this kind of ruthless, hyper-materialistic, white male world of Trump. And he drew connections with, with a lot of the classic of the genre and of something that he calls neo-noir. And one of the films he talked about was Sweet Smell of Success. Had you seen that before? I'd never seen this. And it's a good time to be talking about it because it's uh, 60 years old this year. So it was made in 1957. It was directed by Alexander McKendrick, who, as Douglas points out, is non-American. Actually, a Scottish guy who um, made his name directing Ealing comedies. He directed The Lady Killers, which is so weird, you know, isn't it? absolute classic. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think it sort of begins to make sense when you... The pace of the dialogue in this is almost like a kind of screwball comedy, yeah, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's, it's that aphoristic, rap, rapid, condensed rapid stuff. fire. Yeah, yeah, aphoristic. Exactly, that's the right word. The story's kind of odd. It's about a um, incredibly influential columnist. I mean, who do you think would be the parallel there isn't for one. this? There isn't one. I mean, he was based on a real person, Walter Winchell, mm. who was a friend of McCarthy's mm. and who could make and break careers across New York. I mean, yeah. it's it's just. Incredible. I mean, we, we often talk about the fact that the only critics these days that have that kind of power are theatre critics, don't we? Yeah. Because they can destroy a play. Yeah. But you can't destroy films anymore. You can't destroy books. You can't destroy people. Well, although, you know, it was interesting watching this around the time at the moment of all these um, sexual abuse allegations. And, and, you know, we were talking about there was a piece in the Daily Mail that was an absolute character assassination of a journalist called Kate Maltby. Yeah. And I, watching this, I did think, you're right, no one person has this power, but people do still use the media in this way to kind of attempt to destroy people. That's true, because that piece we felt was was sort of off the radar and it's the kind of journalism we don't really recognise, that no. they just took her down. Yeah. They decided to destroy or, or hope to destroy this person. Yeah. And in this in this film, it's very much about, you know, the strange world of journalism where it all happens at night. No one has a desk. No one's in an office. You're just sitting there in a jazz club and someone comes up and gives you a bit of paper saying, here's something for your column. Yeah, yeah they all kind <laughs> of, all the columnists in this congregate in the, same, in the same place, don't they? And they sit there in corners with, they each seem to have a te- telephone at their table <laughs> and yeah, like piles of scraps of paper in front of them. He's like this, um, you know, who's that figure in the Great Gatsby where it's just the eyes on the billboard? Mm. Eckelberg, TJ Eckelberg. You see his poster all over New York, like, you know, this he's, he's watching over you. Anyway, the character Hunsecker is played by Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis is... Um, this press agent, which is a weird kind of reputation manager, I guess, called Sidney Falco. And he's trying to make a living, trying to drum up business. And he needs Hunsucker, the columnist, to give his clients good reviews, good write-ups in his column. Um, but Hunsucker said he's not going to help him until he forces... It. This is a sense of how sort of weird and convoluted this is. He forces Hunsucker's sister to break off a relationship with a jazz guitarist, Hansucker has this kind of obsessive relationship with this like deeply mm. weird and Freudian and creepy sister. relationship with his 19-year-old sister. He doesn't want her hanging out with this guy. He charges Sidney Falco with breaking it off. So that's the that's the sort of story. But it kind of pimbles around with this weird sort of nervous energy, doesn't it? 
It's an incredible performance from Tony Curtis, who apparently fought very hard to get this part. It's a completely sustained portrait of Machiavellian dealings, and there's no sense of the, the softness and humanity that you get in Curtis in almost every other film you've ever seen him in. It doesn't break. There's, there's nothing nice about him whatsoever. And in fact, the more people insult him, you know, be a man, don't be a weasel, this kind of sense that he's constantly being described as an animal or a child, it seems to like make him more and more excited, doesn't it? Yeah, and you can see why... Tony Curtis fans really hated this Did they? this film yeah apparently so because he's he's sort of detestable and yet he's not the thing about him is he's not successful he doesn't take his coat out when he goes to the nightclubs because he can't afford to tip uh, to put it in the in the coat check place his office is this weird bedsit um, with a woman in it answering a, the phone yeah he's got this narrative and i guess this is where Douglas ties it into the trump stuff is He's got this social Darwinist narrative of like um, everyone for themselves. You've got to hustle to make it. You know, this is a very sort of New York idea. And he's actually kind of flailing around a bit. He's sort of he's sort of in a desperate position. But the script brilliantly plays on on all these ideas. I want us to start talking to each other in aphorisms. Yeah. Um, I hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. You're a cookie full of arsenic. you got the scruples of a guinea pig and the morals of a gangster. Don't pull up the gangplank yet. You might want to get back on board. I don't relish shooting mosquitoes with elephant guns. It's one thing to wear your dog collar when it turns into a noose. I'd rather have my freedom. Occasionally it just goes bizarre, like, go like a hen. You just laid an egg. (laughs) It's like, basically it's written like a column, isn't it? It's just like the punchy lines that he's putting in his column. It shares a a cinematographer with um, another film that Kennedy mentions in the piece, James Wong Howe who was Chinese uh, national, came over to America and was denied American citizenship until after the war. And his marriage to a, an American woman was never recognised. Um, so he was an outsider in a sense. He was influenced by the photos of Ouija and the sense of that kind of the, the police world of New York at, mm. at night. And he also directed Seconds, which is the other film that we're going to talk about. He was the cinematographer. Sorry, di- yeah, di- yeah, yeah, cinematographer. Yeah. This is the film that drove Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys crazy. And he already had his problems. Um, 1966, he was recording Smile, which was obviously an unwieldy project that drove him around the bend. He went to the cinema, he arrived late, and he heard somebody on the screen calling for Mr. Wilson, who's the, the, the main character. And he thought the film was talking to him. Shortly afterwards, he abandoned the smile sessions and he didn't go to the cinema again until he went to see E.T. in in the early 1980s. So it's worth watching for that reason, for any Beach Boys fan. Well, fair enough. I mean, it is a deeply, deeply disturbing film. I suppose we should say something about the way it looks to start with, given the the connection with with the cinematographer. But the opening is kind of amazing. It's full of these weird it's a middle-aged guy you've got these weird close-ups on all sorts of angles you can see the pores of his skin sweat on them there's a weird kind of almost like a steady cam thing you know like in peep show where the camera is basically sort of well actually in peep show it's the other way around it's point of view so you can see through their eyes in this one you've got the kind of thing of um that um adam buxton does sometimes in his videos where he sticks a uh, camera on his bike helmet and then films himself <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, so you've got the camera following around this guy in 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 all sorts of kind of slightly nauseating ways, um, and you've got weird kind of fisheye lenses and wide angle lenses. It's really it looks really really odd. Plot wise, it's a kind of I suppose it's a 
It's like Faust meets Vanilla Sky meets Reginald Perrin meets Death of a Salesman. Oh, very good. It's about it's about a, a washed up sad sack businessman who's who's he's got a boat and he's got a wife and he's just completely detached from his life. There's no joy in it. And a strange company called the Corporation get in touch with him and offer him the change you've been looking for, which is effectively finding at the body of somebody else a cadaver. There's something called the cadaver procurement section and changing his appearance and allowing him to establish a completely new identity and start all over again. There's a particularly poignant line in it where one of the guys who enacts this operation on him says, you are alone in the world, absolved of all responsibility except in your own interest. You've got what every middle-aged man in America would like to have, freedom. I wrote that down as well. It that's that's the nub of the film and that is it's a really alluring idea and perfectly encapsulated there so his freedom is essentially being given a second chance at life his death is faked staged and um through um plastic surgery he emerges as rock hudson <laughs> this kind of hollywood heartthrob there's a great line don't talk we've extracted all your teeth and given you a complete vocal cord resection oh and we've we've changed the tensor ligaments of your hands so that your signature is different it's not far-fetched at all is it and as rock hudson he sort of just looks a bit confused about everything really um and goes to his beach house in malibu where he's been set up with this second identity as a painter which i think you know what it captures is wouldn't that just be incredibly stressful? You know, it, it sounds it sounds brilliant to be given this whole ready-made life. You know, you're a, you're a successful painter. You know, but obviously the guy's panicking because he doesn't know how to how to paint. How to paint. And there's something very I, I don't know what comment this was, but this is made in 1966, a year before the Summer of Love, and he's going to Malibu, and he says when when the crisis point comes, which is basically that he doesn't want to be this person living out on the west coast with yeah. his with his art. He says, um, I spent years trying to get things I told I was told were important and that I was supposed to want. And California was the same. They made the same decisions for me all over again, and they were just the same things. And I thought, what an interesting thing to have come out of, of Hollywood at the time when hippiedom was taking over. Like, what, what sort of statement is that on the idea of like the, the rebirth that hippies were looking mm. for? This sort of cynical sense that like they haven't got it right either. Mm. They're not escaping anything. And the, the one sort of hippie sequence in it, which is a kind of um, bacchanalian festival uh, with wine flowing and people getting naked and jumping in a tub full of grapes, is kind of um, just weird and off-putting and creepy in, in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those classic extended 60s kind of yeah. orgy scenes yeah. that yeah. goes on a bit too yeah. long. What did you think of the marriage? Because I thought that was tragic. His, the real marriage, yeah. his original one. because he goes yeah. back to visit his own wife she's in actually, the figure of Rock Hudson. Yeah, she's actually really... The, the, um, I don't know who the actress is, I'm afraid, but she's brilliant. And she just gives him a... Uh, this is another really compelling moment in the film where he he goes back to find out basically what his wife thought of him. And she just gives him a complete sort of character assessment and said that he was he was effectively dead to her years beforehand. Um, the thing I most remember him for were his silences. Mm. And he had dabbled a bit in painting, this, this former yeah. self. Yeah. And she'd thrown all his paintings out. Yeah. I mean, it was just, that was just tragic. He'd been dead a long time before they found him in that hotel room. We should say that there are some quite funny moments in the film as well. Um, it's got a kind of nice, odd, surreal sense of humour. So the corporation is um, 
is this very strange place with kind of eccentric men who sort of pop up in bow ties and moustaches and and explain things to him. Um, The first time he sits down with one of them in in his office, he presents him with a a chicken dinner, uh, which... uh, um, the, the protagonist doesn't want so the guy the guy sort of sits down next to him tucks in an, a, in a napkin and, and tucks into um then you've got kind of like odd little things like uh, the the lorry that the truck that he gets in to go from one place to another is um honest archie the used cow dealer on the side of the <laughs> on the side of the truck but what douglas kennedy says about it i i, I think is right is that the last five minutes of it and perhaps we shouldn't say exactly what happens in case you want to watch it but it is it is one of the most disturbing sequences i've ever seen actually yeah it's got shades of uh, what would later happen in brazil and mm, clockwork orange absolutely so it's i mean that was why i don't know about you but that's why i wanted to see it i just thought we've got to see this film where he said the most disturbing five minutes in all of cinema <laughs> yeah. it's like we're gonna just fast forward it to the end the other thing that douglas picks out in his in his piece is you know this Seconds is part of something called the Paranoia Trilogy and something that is a big part of this and also Sweet Smell of Success is this uh, background of the, you mentioned McCarthy early on, the the McCarthy witch hunt, uh, the House of Un-American Committee, which was still operational until the 70s. So you've got kind of a Hollywood full of full of people who are either blacklisted or under suspicion or or um, grassing up their their friends and colleagues, and I think you can you can sort of feel some of that under the under the surface, and and also another one, sorry, where um, as with Tony Curtis, Rock Hudson fans hated this film. Yeah, well, you, yeah, you can see why because he wasn't yeah. he wasn't just giving them what they wanted. Yeah. Um, also, interestingly, um, Sweet Smell of Success commercial flop. Yeah. And this one critically panned. Yeah. You know, something someone described it as a very trim film indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and now of course it's got this legendary status, partly because of the Brian Wilson connection and partly just because I don't know, maybe we like maybe we like sci fi more now. I don't know. It was it is basically science fiction. It's not really film noir, but um It yeah. feels it's a broad it, term. It feels of the moment to me. I'd be surprised if a remake project isn't on someone's desk somewhere. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
So Kate and I both recently went to see Oxide Ghosts, which is a new documentary from Michael Cumming, who is the director of Chris Morris's Brass Eye, the um, seminal television show broadcast uh, in 1997, so um, celebrating its 20th anniversary this year satire on sort of news documentary format we went on separate occasions for reasons of illness illness <laughs> espionage <laughs> subterfuge this is a kind of touring film isn't it it's quite unusual because yeah. it's a, a 60 minute documentary that is largely made up of bits that didn't make it into the original series with a quite a kind of poignant voiceover from the director michael cumming um, talking about the sort of, I suppose, the mythology of these seventy VHS tapes he's been carting around with him for for all those years, and a, touching a little bit on the impact of the show at the time, but really it's quite a sort of pure project, isn't it? Because it just gives you a chance as a fan to see things that were left out, some of which are actually to were to me funnier than what got in the original shows. Yeah, it, there's something slightly fetishistic about it. It literally starts with uh, footage of him opening a box full of all these old VHS cassettes. So so you're getting these kind of clippings and cuttings of the things that didn't make it into the show. Yeah, for Brass Eye fans like myself, there's a wealth of great material in there. You get to see the cows fired from their cannons in Tripoli, which is actually this sort of area of scrubland under the West Way in the middle of the day, just cannoning these um, sort of... Uh, dummy animals out out into the sky you get to see a little bit of extra footage of um one of the famous scenes of brass eye when uh, chris morris goes out and tries to score triple sod and clarky cat from a from a drug from real drug dealers in brixton <laughs> and you get a wonderful <laughs> parliament of ladies as well which parliament I think of ladies yeah assembled for the animals um episode which has a cross-section of ladies four of them in a, in a miniature westminster being very very quickly um whipped up into an argument with one another and then in the end Chris Morris goes fur is starting to fly time for the more considered thoughts of a man it's brilliant that episode that that passage and I don't know why it didn't make it in he he introduces them brilliantly he sort of says she's so-and-so this is so-and-so she does some bits for the National Trust. She, she's a vegetarian. She's a vegetarian. <laughs> this woman eats meat. There's, there was a lot of, um, I mean, I'd love to have known why those particular bits were, were left out, some of the funny ones, because um, I mean, there must have been reasons, but there's a great bit that, that never got it into the, the sort of pornography sex um, episode where um, he's interviewing a, a guy who runs an adult channel and he presents him with three items. So he gets the, the classic kind of absurdist Socratic questioning that he does one of them is a massive dildo one of them is a kind of butt that you can have sex with and one of them is a doll that's been where the head's been separated from the neck and a, a, a tube has been attached from the doll's mouth to its own anus and the, the guy who runs the adult channel says you know yeah the, the butt is not offensive the penis is not effect, offensive but this one is chris morris says you know well how would you make it unoffensive and he just goes remove the tube <laughs> I I don't know whether that was uh, it does get progressively more obscene as he sort of squirts ketchup on the on the, on the items. <laughs> but they're still not well. offensive with ketchup. But still on not them. offensive. I mean, you made a you wrote a, a great piece for us a few weeks ago about uh, we did a kind of retrospective of nineties comedy, and you made the point that in a sense that a lot of the the controversy that surrounds Brass Eye sort of detracts from what was brilliant about it, and and that one of the things that caused all the negative attention, apart from say the the you know the paedophilia episode, was that these celebrities were being hoaxed. 
and conned into endorsing things that weren't true and that somehow this actually that was not the most sophisticated part of the humor and that was not the best bit and what do you think was the the crux of what made brass eye so good to be fair on it the hoaxes are a pretty spectacular achievement and when you read around it and realize the level they went uh, the, the lengths they went to to get these people you know they set up fake offices they invented they invented fake uh, charities put all this work into like creating these letterheads you know they they'd send out their researchers to to do the interviews i suppose their aim was really to show just how quickly people will jump at the chance to get on television get on the soapbox how they won't check anything they won't research anything they're happy to be fed lines so there was a serious point to that but then um some of those hoaxes kind of feel a bit flimsy in retrospect. Like um, earlier you mentioned there's a there's a section with Darkus Howe and there's another one with um, Claire Rayner where it's just a sort of cheap gag, really. They're not, you know, there's no reason to puncture them. Um, but, but you do have, uh, you know, Dr. Fox saying that paedophiles share more genetic material in common with crabs than they do with humans, which is just incredible that these they didn't sort of get under the, the surface of the material that they were being asked to say to the camera I mean I it wouldn't happen now would it there's no way that would happen now. I don't think it would happen now and um, yeah Dr Fox Noel Edmonds um, saying that this drug simulates a part of the brain known as Shatner's bassoon um, but, but <laughs> this what, is the new drug cake this is the new drug cake but what was amazing about that is these people were absolutely furious when it came out Noel Edmonds wrote an an absolutely furious denunciation of it um, and sent it out to newspapers and things. And actually, it was that that kind of stoked the interest in it. And and before that, reporters weren't uh, reporters and reviewers weren't sure, well, maybe they're in on the joke, you know, maybe it's a bit of a stitch-up. But the fact that people like uh, Edmonds, who had his own... He, he had a he had a kind of hoax show, didn't he? Like Gotcha or something? Yeah, or, yeah, like, yeah a, like, like a Beatles, Beatles About, about thing. type thing. Yeah. yeah, the fact that he... And, and David Amos, the MP who who eventually tabled a, a motion in the, in Parliament about cake. Um, so there's a reference to it now forever in Hansard, which Michael <laughs> Cumming in the Q&A after, he's always so proud of this, you know, rightly so, but but um, this has been forever lodged in the national record. I mean, he tried to, um, he um, lodged an official complaint against the against the show. Um, and not to bore you with the legal details, but um, it was quite interesting because the ITC, the Television Commission, basically said, you're right, you do have a legitimate complaint, but this show is kind of brilliant and really funny, so we're not going to pursue it right. at all. Yeah. And after that, they kind of changed the, changed the code to say that if you can justify how you're hoaxing people with, with a genuine public interest then you will allow you to make the programs. And that was changed from that. That was changed from that, from that which, which you'd think would make it easier to do these things. But weirdly, I think the fact that before it was kind of grey and afterwards they put it in black and white now means that people really do have to have a kind of watertight case for like, this is definitely in the public yeah. interest in order to make I it. I guess also it coincides with an era where celebrities were much more inclined to do silly things for, for press as well. You know, you had smash hits in the 80s where you could go on a roller coaster with Banana Rama to interview them. You, you got you got this kind of, there was a bit more of playing ball in yeah. there. But there's something, you know, we're very, very careful now. It's very litigious. It's all very sort of surveyed by PRs and management and maybe that's the other thing I thought was um interesting again just that it wouldn't quite happen now is that we have so many celebrities 
who we find genuinely offensive at the moment that you would want to see humiliated by someone like Chris Morris. You yeah. would want Piers Morgan, you'd want Katie Absolutely, Hopkins, you'd want yeah. Boris Johnson yeah. up there. You don't, it sort of breaks my heart to see Gary Lineker and Claire Rayner being hideously embarrassed yeah. on television. So in a way it was kind of a harsher age in a sense because there was this sense of like, you know, humiliating the innocent but now we're in a kind of age of trolling where we we want to see these people being taken down so yeah there you're right the the stakes feel feel much higher now and um you'd love chris morris to to take on a hopkins figure um but yeah i just i i don't know now these people must surround themselves with all sorts of press agents and prs who would who would ward it off mars away to answer your original question as brilliant as the hoaxes are what i think really stands out about the show now is just how how dense it was, how, um, you know, each episode clocks in around 25 minutes, I think, and they are just absolutely crammed. They're so tightly written. There's so many gags in there. I think, again, it's something to do with Chris Morris's absolutely kind of obsessive way of working that everything his uh, his writers sort of took to him, he would, he'd put it in, but then add something else. You know, even, even the drug scene, Michael Cummings said that he wanted to... Um, come back next week in a horse-drawn carriage dressed up as a romantic poet and try to score opium you know okay that's one that didn't come off but that's classic Morris like he will he'll just take everything one step further than is necessary it is like being um, hit over the head with a sledgehammer isn't it watching it uh, watching several episodes in succession I mean it's hard to watch a, a cow being called a bloody bastard and a stupid fucker <laughs> And for me, that's why Oxide Ghosts was was good because it had this it let little bits of air onto this intense barrage of jokes. So it shows outtakes occasionally, and in the paedophile episode where Chris Morris is sleezing on a twelve year old girl in this horrifically uncomfortable way, it shows an outtake where she just bursts out laughing because he says, "You know, when you fall when you fall in the snow, I bet you make a couple of bumps." Yeah. <laughs> She just goes, I knew that was going to get me. And you just think, oh, it's all, it's all okay. It's all okay. These were normal people. They were just actors. Yeah, I think that might have been the sex episode. I can't, I yeah, can't, I can't yeah. remember. But, um, yeah, it was the sex episode. Yeah, no, that is one that um, re-watching it this year, I found it really much more uncomfortable than I had the first time around because I was just a, you know, a teenager the first time around. <laughs> but yeah, it's brilliant It's brilliant to see him him enjoying it and also him riffing in, you know, the way those kind of Will Ferrell movies are made now where basically they just roll tape and let them let them ramble and riff on on a theme and then if you watch the outtakes it's just the scenes go on for like 20 minutes um so there's a little bit of that like uh when when he plays the um i think it's for the animals episode but he plays um, a civil servant who's in charge of procuring beasts for westminster (laughs) you you see him just ramble off a long list of you know leopards tapirs (laughs) you know all these all these animals that he's got i think in the in the uh in the final episodes it's kind of uh, cut down to just um it's about seven minutes though <laughs> it's, but in the final episode he's, he's, he just talks about you know michael hessentine had an ape that he slapped if he was angry and uh, tony ben used to pin notes onto a tapir um and send it send it wandering around it's this sort of delicious thoughts. attachment to language you know it reminds me of uh, what you used to get in in red dwarf as well a few years earlier these made-up words being popped into real dialogue and it talks about the state of Britain is Britain brain dead and quadrospazzed on a life plug oh no it's wonderful and and this is what you know I think for me and my friends and probably a lot of people around the same age group um it had such a kind of definable warped poetics of its own that it it very quickly became just how we communicated with each other 
you know, the the twisted brain wrong of one of man mental or whatever. It was, you know. <laughs> they're just um, they're just brilliant, brilliant pieces of writing. Brilliant. So do go and see Oxide Ghost. It is, um, as I say, it's a kind of a touring thing. Um, they don't want it to leak. They don't want it to be that available online. Um, you know, so you basically got to go and hear the director talking about it, which yeah, is what you want, really. I think on Michael Cummings' website, he has a he has a, a, a list of where it's showing, and it's being being expanded the whole time. This week, every one of our items has been an anniversary, really, because we've had twenty years of brass eye and sixty years since the sweet smell of success. But we haven't yet had our non-anniversary, Kate. So what have we got? Roughly 28. We were trying to work out whether this was 28 or 18 years ago because our maths isn't very good. Still, scientists are working on this. Scientists are working. 28 years ago this month was the anniversary of the Reebok pump, singular. The Reebok pump, which I didn't have. Did you have one? I didn't have one either. One or two or even? (laughs) These were things that my, my only question about the Reebok pump to this day was that once you pumped it up, how do you get it off again? I think that was it. It was a one-use thing, wasn't it? You just had to to, um, to get a pin and stick it in there and, and let the air out. Or did you just keep them on? Oh, what? Because you couldn't remove your foot from Honestly, it. how did oh, you get yeah, them off? Like, problem. was there a valve? I never saw one because they were so rare. I think there was a valve. Okay. I think there was a valve. I, I think they, they would have addressed this problem in the design process. But they were part of the kind of playground lust of the so what was it late 80s early 90s 80 89 yeah 89, so, yeah. yeah part of the playground lust objects and a weird time where you got kind of 11 year old kids wearing like 80 quid trainers just mm. in the playground which actually in you know we you heard that across the pond children were being killed for their pumps <laughs> and yeah. it was quite exciting it didn't mean that you actually ever got them yourself and i remember acts of sabotage of um people puncturing each other's nike airs <gasps> things like that really? yeah yeah um so could be the cause of some danger and violence really uh so happy 28th anniversary anniversary to the reebok pump Thank you for listening to The Back Half Podcast. We've been Tom Gatti and Kate Mossman and we were edited by Caroline Crampton. And we are playing you out as ever with Godspeed by the Japanese prog lords Pistol Jazz. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.